Lord, we love you, and we're about to read your word. Lord, calm us with your word. Steady us and examine our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, remember, in, the, in our study on the Beatitudes here, we're looking at a couple of different things. We're looking at our hearts, but we're also uh, looking at how we do ministry because Jesus, he's, he's talking to his disciples here. And of course, these pro, these, they're not questions, but they're sort of probing statements that get to the heart of the disciples. But I also think they're up on a, on, a, on a mountainside, on a hillside here, and he's looking at the town below or at the crowds that are gathered around as well. And he's saying, guys, we're trying to do ministry to these folks. But not all of them are ready. Not all of them are ready to hear the gospel. But blessed are these who have these qualities in the Beatitudes. They are ready for the gospel. They are ready to enter the kingdom of God. And so, Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, with his, when he sat down his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when men revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so men persecuted the prophets who were before you. And I'll just come back and I'll, and I'll read verse 8 again because that's what we're going to focus on today. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Um, uh, this is another one of those Beatitudes. There have been a couple of them here that, to me, they're, they're a little bit difficult uh, to preach or, or to, to write a sermon for because uh, there's not a whole lot to explain. So much of the Bible, you, you need some explanation, and that's my job, to get you the explanation that you, you can't see for yourself. But some of, the, some of the statements in the Bible, some of the statements in the Beatitude are very simple. They're quite on the nose. It's, it's, it's not really hard to, to, to understand. Last week it was, blessed are the merciful, for they shall, they shall obtain mercy. Is there anything hard about that? Is there anything that you can't quite understand about that? That's, that's a pretty easy statement to read, understand, and then uh, and, and even apply to your life. This one today, I, I, th I thought was sort of the same way. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. But you still do your study, you stu still do your due diligence, and you, and you read. And I'm so glad that I did because it really did, um, it really did clarify for me what uh, Jesus is talking about here. Um, when Matthew writes this, of course, Jesus is speaking in Hebrew or Aramaic when he's talking to his disciples. So when Matthew when Matthew's writing it, he's a native speaker of what Jesus was, was saying. So he, he, he can choose the right Greek word uh, to translate it into. And he chose a word here uh, for pure that, that, that the Greek word is katharsos. No, kataros, kataros. And it, if it's Greek, you might as well kind of act Greek or a little bit and, and, and try to put some accent into it. Kataros, okay? Um, and so that's what the word is. And when Matthew chooses that word, uh, of course, to any of his readers who speak Greek, he, he is conscious that it will bring all kinds of things to their mind. And so the, the commenter that I was uh, reading, he said, this is what it should bring to mind for you. This is all the things that it should bring to, to mind for you. Because kath kataros, what does it mean? It means pure. 
fine. But what does pure mean or what does it, how did they use that word? Uh, in what context, in what situations might they use that word? And so, uh, you know, people who study Greek and study ancient Greek in particular will say, every time we run across this word, this is the kind of context it's in. These are the kinds of contexts that they might use this word in. Uh, so number one, for even for clothing, clean clothes, for clean clothes, you know, maybe my my clothing is stained, but I'm going to take some some soap and get down to the river, and I'm going to uh, rub it until it's catharos. Okay, I'm going to purify this. I'm going to clean. I'm going to get the stain out. Um, also for sifted grain, sifted grain. So when you you've got your wheat or your corn and you harvest it. Um, you, 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 you take the wheat and, and you, well, the first thing you do is you trample it to get all the, the grain off, and then you throw the grain into the air. I don't know if you've ever seen this done. We, we have machines that do this now, but in the ancient world, they, they take the grain, throw it into the air, and the stuff that you want, the grain, is heavy, so it falls back to earth pretty quickly, but everything that you don't want blows away in the wind. So on a nice windy day, you, you go out there, you trample your grain, and then you throw it in the air, and then all the chaff, the stuff that you don't want, blows away, but the good, pure grain stays right there. So the grain that has has been sifted, the grain that has been uh, winnowed or, or whatever it is, uh, the grain that has been thrown into the air and all the chaff has blown away, the stuff that you don't want is blown away, that grain is katharos, okay? And how about this? This is a, this, these are, here's a couple of other good ones. Undiluted wine, undiluted wine, unspoiled milk, and unalloyed metals. Okay, so most metals are mixtures of different kinds of metals, but anything that's that's 100% pure, that's 24 karat gold or whatever, you know, something that's pure like that, it's katharos. It's pure. It's not contaminated with anything else. It's unalloyed. Uh, and your milk, this is good milk here. Uh, it's not, it doesn't have uh, anything growing in it. Still smells good straight from the cow. All right, it's katharos. And then this is one of, maybe one of the more shocking ones here, or not shocking, but it, it was, oh, okay, that, I can see that too. They said it was used in terms of an army. Uh, an army is, it's got all these different kinds of soldiers in them. Some of them are brave, some of them are cowards, but we're going to purge the cowards. And after we purge the cowards out of the army, now that regiment of soldiers is Katharos. It's pure. Nobody, no man there is going to turn back. Every man there is going to fight to the end. Uh, they, they don't have any, they don't have any fear in their mind or any, any, any uh, instinct of turning back. We've got Katharos soldiers in a Katharos regiment, and everybody here is pure. We purify the army. We purge the army of anything, of anything and anybody we don't want. So those are the, all the kinds of things that that should come to our minds when we uh, when we think of the word pure here, and for, for the commenter. When he was thinking about it, when he, when he was writing about it, the thing that he really sort of wanted to punch into all of us is that uh, when Jesus says, blessed are the, the katharos in heart, blessed are the, what he means is blessed are the people who have no uh, thought of turning back after you start following Jesus and have no mixed motivations and have no ulterior motives and come to, to Jesus because you want Jesus. You come to Jesus because you want Jesus. And that really, that really hits home because when I started thinking about all the motives for the reasons that I do things, sometimes my motives are not completely pure. My motives are not 100% uh, in the right. I do dishes from time to time, but it is not because I'm passionate about a clean kitchen. Okay? And it's not even passionate that I, or it's not even that I'm passionate about having an empty sea, sink. It's because I know it will win me the affections of my wife. I have ulterior motives every time I clean anything at home. 
Even when I tidy up the living room, because we have little children, and so two minutes after they're awake, it's just, there's stuff everywhere, right? But even then, if I tidy, if, if I tidy up the living room, it's largely to win the affections of my wife, or at least to keep from stepping on Legos. My kids right now are still using the bigger Legos, not the smaller Legos. Um, So it's not that big of a deal if you step on on a large Lego now, but if you step on a small one, it's awful, right? So it's not just because I want the living room clean. It's not just because I want to help my wife. Um, There are ulterior motives. I've got ulterior motives for almost everything I do, and not just the household things. Um, There are times with my work, and shouldn't I have the noblest and highest of ideals when when I come to work? I mean, I'm in ministry, for crying out loud. Shouldn't I have... 100% pure motives when I come here to do the work that I do? Of course I do. But in the back of my mind, every once in a while, I have to admit, do I want the biggest church? I have to question myself at least. Do I want to have a big church because I'm passionate about the soul of everybody in Gardner? Or do I just want the biggest church in the county so that that everybody will know that I have the biggest church in the county? I have to question myself, I have to examine myself, I have to think about myself all the time so that I can make sure that all of my motivations are 100% pure, that I'm not just doing these things for what I can get out of it, that I'm doing things for the Lord or for the good of other people. I have to examine myself. And you might relate to some of this. You might. I hope you don't because I hope that you always do everything out of 100% pure motives. But if you're like me, if you've snickered during the time that I've said some of these things, it's probably because you can say, yeah, I can relate to that. I can understand that. Maybe uh, not everything I do is just for the good. It's not just pro bono. It's not just for the good of what I'm doing. I do have sometimes mixed, maybe at best mixed motives, sometimes maybe at worst ulterior motives. And that bothers me. That bothers me that my motives are mixed sometimes. Because my fear is that it'll get in the way of me having a relationship with God. And that's a justified fear. Because look at some of the things that Jesus says in the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, I was talking to a friend, and I was talking to him about preaching the Beatitudes and its relationship with the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. And he said, the rest of the Sermon on the Mount is commentary on the Beatitudes. Okay, so next time you're reading through Matthew chapters 5 through 7, whenever you read something in in chapters, uh, say, the last half of chapter 5 and the rest of chapters 6 and 7, try to relate that back to one of the Beatitudes. Which of the Beatitudes does this point back to? Okay, so here's chapter 6, verse 1, and I think that this one relates very much back to blessed are the pure in heart. He says, Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's a pretty shocking statement. That's a pretty stark statement. Um, So... And this, and this all has to do with religious duty. So especially me, uh, I, I need to listen up here because he's not talking about any other civic duty or, or anything like that or household duty. He's talking about religious duty, okay? So, so here we go, verse 2. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. All right? 
Well, that's obviously talking about your motive, your motive of why you do these things. Why, uh, why are you loving you? We all know that you're supposed to love your neighbor as yourself. Why are you loving your neighbor as yourself? Is it for everybody else to see and esteem you? Oh, the interesting thing is that Jesus says, ah, you get rewarded for it, but who do you want to be rewarded by? Do you want to be rewarded by the people who see you on earth? Or do you want to be rewarded by God? Who do you think gives the better reward, God or people? All right, And if your idea is, well, I think people probably give me the better reward, then what does that say about your view of God? That you think that God is stingy and he's not going to give you a great reward or he's not going to bless you very much. No, he says, no, you want God's reward. You want your Heavenly Father's reward. So if you can stand it, if you can put away all of your mixed motives and do something only for God to see, then guess what? You'll have a reward. Maybe you won't have it today. Maybe you won't have it tomorrow, but you'll have it for eternity, and it'll be oh so good. All right? And, and this, this I mean, you know, the Sermon on the Mount really forms in, uh, uh, or influences a lot of what Western morality is. So even in the Western world, even if people have more or less abandoned Christianity or we're, we're often seen as a post-Christian world, these ethics still play a part because in the West... Uh, there is still is a very common thing for people to give an anonymous donation. Anonymous donations are common. That's the way people often do it. Because even if they don't know the Sermon on the Mount, they know in the back of their mind that th that the good that you do for people is not for everybody to see. It's for, and they wouldn't necessarily, if they're post-Christian, if they're not a believer, they might not say it's, it's for God to see. They would say, if, and if they don't believe in God, then they are their own God. They would probably say, this is for me to, to feel good about just intrinsically, not for everybody else to see. Okay, But that ethic is still very strong in the West that we don't, uh, that you don't uh, just do good or make some kind of a donation for other people to see. Keep, let's keep going. Look at verse 5. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have their reward in full. But when you pray, go in your, into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. All right, And so uh, for, for us, we all know that our devotion to God, our private devotional life really needs to be, um, it, it's not that it needs to be a private thing and kept as a private thing. In the West, we often say, that's your religious private life. You just keep that at home where it belongs. That's not really what Jesus is saying here. But if your religion is just for show, then everybody will see through it. Everybody will see through it. But we need to have a private, a personal walk with the Lord but it doesn't mean, I don't think it means that we need to keep it uh, out of the public sphere. We just need to make sure that it's in both spheres, our public and private life. And if it's, if it's only in one, it's in the private, not the public. Okay? All right. So the, bless, the, the Sermon on the Mount and Jesus' other teachings are full of condemnation for people who do things with wrong motives. And so it gives you this scary warning. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And the reason it's scary is because I, I think about the converse what, what, what if the opposite is, is also true? Cursed are those who do things with mixed motives. Or cursed are those who do things with the wrong motives, for they shall not see God. That scares me. That scares me. And so I want God to be continually um, examining my heart, um, examining my motivations, and making sure that I'm doing things because I love him and because I want to serve properly in his, in his kingdom with self-sacrifice, with self-sacrifice. 
we have a we have a doctor in our congregation. We have a we have a teacher in our congregation, and these are two con uh, two, two professions. They're very different professions, but they also overlap in a lot of ways. In that um, they take a, it requires a lot of devotion, and also that both of these people go into their profession with high ideals and noble values. You go into teaching because you want to bless children. You want to teach children. You want to pass something on to the next generation. You want to start children off with uh, the best that you can in life. That is a very good, high ideal, and, a, and I know that, that most teachers go into it with pure motives. Doctors also, they want to be healers. They, wanted, they want to do everything they can to heal people, keep people alive, fight the disease, fight the, the cancers, fight the, the, the chronic illnesses and all that, and improve people's lives, give them more time uh, in life with their family. They, that's what they want. That is the motivation. And it's a very high ideal, and it's a very noble ideal. And with teachers and, and doctors both, I think they, they both know, they both go into that knowing that uh, even though I will have sort of a, an eight-to-five job, it's never an eight-to-five job. You will always take work home. You're always sort of working. You're, if, if you're a teacher, you're always planning. You're always grading. You're always prepping things. Uh, and if you're a doctor, you know that you're a doctor all the time. And if somebody calls in the middle of the night, if there's some kind of emergency, you know uh, people are going to be looking for you. If you're ever in a restaurant, you can't just go out into a restaurant and say, nobody here is my responsibility. Because if somebody starts having a heart attack in the restaurant, somebody's going to stand up and yell out, is there a doctor here? Or if you're on a plane, is there a doctor here? You could, you, you, you know, if, if, if movies and TV are right, you, you may have to deliver a baby at any moment while you're out in public, right? So you know that it's going to invade on your private life. You know that you don't just clock out from those things. And you know that the people, the best teachers and the best doctors are the ones who do things from this intrinsic motivation that they have to uh, bless other people. But even for them, it cannot be 100% pure devotion and service to other people. Because if you take their paycheck away, can they do that forever? You know, teachers certainly didn't do it for the money. Okay, everybody knows that the teacher's salary is, you know, you, you go to school for five years to make less than the average person, even a lot of people who didn't go to college. Okay? So you know you know that um, they're not doing it for the money. Okay, some doctors, they may just be uh, doing it for the money. But most doctors do take that oath uh, seriously, that I'm a doctor, I'm a healer all the time. But if you take any kind of benefit away, they can't do it much longer because they have a livelihood. They have to keep themselves going. They have to set up a house. You, nobody can do things for a 100% pure motive um, because they have needs. They have to do things also for themselves. And it's fair, of course. And in the Bible, when Paul talks about even like clergy, he says, make sure you, make sure you pay your Bible teachers um, because, and this is an Old Testament thing that he, that, he, uh, that he quotes, and I think it's a funny verse. He says, remember what the Bible says, uh, don't muzzle the oxen while it treads out the grain. Okay, Play, Pay your pastors because uh, we know that the Bible says don't muzzle the ox when, you, when they tread out the grain. Because even when the ox is working, the ox deserves a little bit of the harvest. 
okay? Uh, the ox deserves a little bit of, uh, of benefit from it. And if you're somebody who, um, a lot of clergy feel this way, I don't feel this way, don't, don't, don't take it as me saying that, but certainly teachers and doctors and other healthcare professionals will also uh, say that sometimes they just feel like an ox that's just carrying this heavy burden and, and going along with people whipping them uh, all behind. And there's no way that they should, um, that they should be expected to do that for just free. All right, let me keep on going here. Even in religious duty, even in religious duty, um, even clergy, even people like me can sometimes do things for the wrong reasons, or even if they started out doing it for the right reasons, the wrong reasons can start, uh, can start creeping in. Uh, before I became a pastor, I was a missionary, and there's no such thing, right, as a missionary who does things for the wrong reasons. But even if missionaries start out doing things, you know, uh, living with self-sacrifice and going to difficult places and uh, pouring out their lives for Christ in those places, um, mixed motivations can still come in. Mixed motivations can still come in. Um, I remember, I remember uh, it's not even sometimes mixed motivations, but it's sometimes it's, uh, it's sort of this uh, self-righteousness or, or confidence or, or or uh, you know, just being being better than other people, even among clergy, who you know the, the the status symbol becomes who's sacrificing the most, who's sacrificing the most. And I remember when I was in Bible college, every every uh, speaker that came into our chapel services is just hammering away at all all these young people. Are you really pouring out your life for the Lord? Are you really giving everything over to God? Are, are you really available to Him? Will you really obey Him and, and, and do whatever calling He's called you to and, and all this stuff? And uh, I was a mission student, so I, I'm the one sitting back here saying, yes, absolutely. All the rest of these people are going to be youth pastors or, or clergy in suburb churches or something like that. No, 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 no. I'm going to Africa, all right? That's what I'm doing. And, and, and by doing that, I could even make the speaker feel guilty because the speaker's not a missionary in Africa, right? Okay? So even if I did start out with a calling, with good intentions, with pure ideals about what I'm doing and why I'm doing it and that I'm doing it for God, all of those other motivations can come in later. They can sneak in there and they can tempt you to feel all kinds of pride or feel all kinds of self-righteousness because you're doing more for the kingdom than other people. Um, anyway, just so you know, even when you get religious, even when you get into full-time uh, ministry, even when you really are pouring out your life for the Lord, the temptation doesn't stop. The mixed motives don't stop. We gotta, we gotta work on those things all the time. Even if, even if, uh, even when you see uh, clergy that you hold up as heroes, even they will sometimes uh, struggle with these kinds of things. And when Jesus had big crowds following him, he he would often bring up these things because he knew that people were coming to him with mixed motives. Uh, people came to Jesus, and you know Jesus offers salvation here, but there's often. Uh, one other thing, this other little thing that everybody wants, and if that doesn't work out, then they begin to doubt or not not seek after this other thing, the thing that Jesus really is is uh, is providing. So uh, I got married later in life, and I've talked about that um, uh, f uh, quite a bit uh, with the church. But there's this there's this thing over here that if I, uh, you know, I, I want salvation, I want everything that Jesus can give me, but I'm also looking to get married over here. Okay, I also want the girl of my dreams, okay? And that didn't, that didn't come for a very, very, very long time. And so uh, in my mind, in the back of my mind, I start to think, is Jesus good? Is he really good? 
Does he really love me? And, and I can start doubting, is God good? Is salvation everything you want? If he's withholding this from me, is he going to withhold this from me too? And so these other little things, and for not, and it was that for me, but for other people, it's um, maybe some kind of healing or maybe some kind of success or maybe some kind of status or, or whatever it is. But a lot of times people will add this little chunk out here, and it's small compared with all the salvation that he's giving us. It's a very small thing, but it shows that we often come to Jesus with mixed motives. Well, in the Bible, people came to Jesus with mixed motives all the time. And he would still, he, still heal them. He would still, you know, break the bread and, and feed 5,000 with them. You know, he would do all these things for them. Um, but every once in a while, when the crowd was getting so big that he knew that everybody here is coming to me, um, maybe not just for the teaching, maybe not just for me, not, maybe not just because they want to, uh, to access to God the Father, then he would step back and he would say things like, if you're going to be my disciple, you have to count the cost. Take up your cross and follow me. Uh, anybody that wants to follow me, uh, they, have to, they have to forge ahead and never look back because it's just like when you're plowing. If you start looking back when you're plowing, your furrows are going to get off. Everything is going to be ruined. So if you look back after you started plowing with me, uh, I, I don't want you. You're not worthy of me. Even if you value your father and mother and brother and sister and wife and children and everything above me, then you're not worthy of me. He would make these very difficult statements and just like maybe maybe not just like he intended but just 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 like that people would start walking away because it's too hard to follow Jesus because if because he if he asked for such devotion such incredible loyalty and after they left one time after a great exodus of people away from Jesus Jesus even looked over at the disciples and said what about you are you going to leave too and Peter said lord we've we've forsaken everything to follow you and in, in, the, in, in the back of my mind, you know, if it's, if, if it's me saying that, I would say, we've forsaken everything. We're better than all these uh, folks out here that are turning away. But that's not, you know, Jesus didn't answer him sarcastically or anything. He looked and he said, you'll be rewarded. So I think Peter must have, must have uh, um, you know, must have said, Lord, we've, we've abandoned everything to follow you. What, maybe in the back of his mind, there's like, what else could we possibly abandon to follow you? Uh, so I think he must have asked with at least a fairly good heart there because Jesus said, and you'll be rewarded for it. You'll, you'll receive back. Everything that you lose, you'll receive back. And that's the great promise, that everything that you lose, everything that you give up to follow the Lord, anytime that your motivation is tested, if you come out, if you pass the test, if you say, okay, I'll put that aside, whatever that thing is out here that I wanted along with my salvation, if I say, okay, I'll put that aside, guess what? You'll get rewarded. And the reward is seeing Jesus, seeing God. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed is everybody who, who purges all of that contamination, all of those mixed motiva motives, and all of that um, um, sort of dual, dual motivations. Anybody can get, uh, can get that out of their life, purify the, their, their hearts from that. Guess what? They'll start seeing Jesus. They'll start seeing God more clearly with no mixed motivations. Now, I just want to go ahead and say that, that God is not requiring something of you that he hasn't also required of himself, okay? Uh, and I want to talk about God. Uh, I want to talk about Jesus on earth, walking among us, incarnated, uh, and his obedience to God. There are two things that God is very passionate about, um, and that is, that is his glory and to save people. Okay? He's very passionate about his glory and not sharing his glory with any, anybody else. And he's very passionate about uh, saving and redeeming people. 
uh, on this side, on, on him uh, not sharing his glory, not, and not, that, that sounds very egotistical every time um, I say it or I hear a theologian talk about it, but it's very much true that, that God does not want to share his glory with anybody else because what is anything else? It's a false God. And God is passionate about everybody in the world knowing the truth. And he sees everybody in the world worshiping a false God and giving glory to some sort of a false God. And that is wrong. You know, in, in the Exodus story, um, he comes to Egypt. He's, he's, a, he's confronting Egypt about everything. And there are these ten plagues that he puts on Egypt. And every time he issues a new plague to the Egyptians, what he's really doing is he is um, confronting a different God in the Egyptian pantheon. He's, con he's confronting a different God every time. You know, the, the first one is he turned the Nile to blood because the, the Egyptian people more or less worshipped the Nile because it was the source of their life, or at least they thought it was. But rather than worshipping the river as the source of their life, they should have been worshipping God as the source of the river. Okay? So the first thing God does is beats the river. Okay? I, I defeat the river. And then every single plague after that, it is him defeating another God so that the Egyptians will know there's one God in this universe. That's it. And I'm higher than any other God because they are not gods. They are false gods. And I share my glory with no one. And why ten plagues? Because not only does he want the Egyptians to know it, he wants everybody else to know it. And it worked. Remember, right before they came into Jericho, Rahab, uh, Rahab is, um, she was a prostitute, and she hid the spies, and she helped the Israelites invade Jericho. She turned her back on her own people, okay? From their perspective, she's an absolute traitor. Why did she do it? And she tells the spies, I heard. I heard about the glory of your God. I heard what he did. And I know that he's the only true God. And I know that there's salvation in nothing else. Everybody here is, is, is scared of you, and there are sacrifices to all kinds of gods around here in order to save them from you and your God. But I know it's not going to work out. So she converts over. She becomes a traitor to her own culture uh, and becomes a believer in the glory of God. And the mission of God's people always is fill the earth with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. Why? Because he needs to put away and eclipse all other false gods so that people will put them away because there is no salvation found in those gods. So God's passionate, passionate about his glory. He's also passionate about saving people. And those two things rarely come into conflict because you can do both of those things at the same time. In fact, they're absolutely tied together because he says, you know, if I'm lifted up, everybody will come to me and, and they'll be saved, right? But if there's ever a time, if there ever was a time when God's glory and his ability to save ever came into conflict, it was on the cross. It was the only time that God said, for this job, for this right here, I have to lay aside my glory. In fact, for the, the whole incarnation, when Jesus comes into the world, that, that's the glory or, or the, the mystery of the incarnation is that God, God the Son, glorious from eternity past, laid his glory aside and took on bodily form, human bodily form. And for 30 years, Jesus' glory was not seen. God the Son's glory was not seen because he looked just like a regular person. And he walked everywhere just with regular people, and he bumped shoulders with them in the marketplace, and they had no idea that they actually just bumped shoulders and brushed up against Lord God Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. But his glory was veiled. His glory, he had set it aside. In fact, in his, in his time on earth, he only revealed his glory one time, and that was on the Mount of Transfiguration. 
Peter, James, and John, they get to go up there and they get to see Christ in his glorious form. And that's only for a few minutes. And when they're coming down the mountain, he says, don't tell anybody about that. Don't tell anybody about that. It's not time for them to know that yet. And then when it comes time, when the teaching phase is over, when the healing phase of his ministry is over, when the feeding phase of his ministry is over, and all of that, and it's really time to come and do what he did, and that is to die on the cross as a sacrifice for everyone's sins, he certainly laid whatever glory, not, not just his glory aside, he laid his dignity aside and allowed himself to be arrested, tried in kangaroo court, maligned, beaten, stripped, and killed for public display. Glory set aside, I'd say so. Dignity set aside, I'd say so. Not glory, glorious love. If anybody says, no, 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 it was his most glorious moment, I'll say, okay, I concede. Glorious love, glorious love. But it was a horrific thing to see him on the cross. The resurrection, quite glorious, quite glorious. An amazing thing to see. Everybody is scared to death when they see him in the resurrection. But that's not even his most glorious form. You see, John... Uh, who saw Christ in the book of Revelation, he sees him, and he sees him coming back. This is, this is what it will look like when he comes back. I was given a glimpse of the future. This is what it's going to look like when, he's, when he comes back. Not naked, not beaten, not with a crown of thorns, not in an undignified and unglorious way, no. On a horse, on a cloud, in incredible battle armor, with a sword. And when he says, when he speaks, his enemies are, are defeated. Now that's incredible glory. But for his saving work on the cross, the glory is set aside. And so for you, when you're serving the Lord, please keep your dignity about you. Please, please have a certain uh, uh, dignity about you or whatever when, you, when you're doing it. But at some point, in your service to the Lord, he will probably test your motives. And at that moment, you'll find out, do I want to do this or not? And if the answer is no, and if the answer is because, because I think it would be humiliating, because I think it would be difficult, because I think it wouldn't give me what I thought it would give me, then your motives are being tested. And at that point, you might say, have to say, Okay, Lord, I understand. You put aside not just your dignity or your glory, but your dignity as well. And you faced, you, you, your motives were tested, and you went to the cross to save us and be obedient to your Father. And so guess what? If you ask me to do this, Lord, I'll do it out of obedience to you because I know it's going to be hard for me in your service to the Lord. And I don't know what kind of service you do for the Lord. I don't know what kind of, what place you could fill around here in church. But more than likely, at some point, it could be even be another believer that comes up to you and becomes a critic. Instead of saying, thank you, I appreciate your help. They'll criticize the way you did it. All right? And you'll have to say, is this what I signed up for? And unfortunately, the answer is yes. But it happens. It happens. Uh, a while back, um, 
the, the director of the food pantry said that a lot of the food pantry volunteers, um, the director and, and some of the other uh, volunteers even have sort of this one client that just, I, it, that person's just hard for me to take, okay? And so when that happens and you say, I'm, I'm out of here, I can't work beside this person or I can't face this person, I can't help this person because ooh, there are people that are like that. They're just great against you. That's the wonderful thing about the church. You come here to get sanded off. You come here to get purified. You come here to find out what lurks in your heart. But when those things happen, you say, okay, Lord, my motives are being tested. Holy Spirit, please empower me to keep doing what I'm doing for my friends, for my neighbors, for my families, for the church, for the people of the world. I came here to serve them, not knowing what it would be like. Now I know. Now I know what I have to do. Father, empower me <laughs> to grit my teeth and do all this stuff in obedience to you. And the promise is, the promise is that after you do that, after you lay your glory aside, lay your dignity aside, and just grin and bear the things that you have to grin and bear in service to the Lord, Jesus gives you this promise. You'll see me clearer. You'll read the Bible, and you'll see me clearer. In, in, in daily life, when you're out there serving people, you'll see me clearer. You'll know me clearer. You'll sing to me even clearer, because something will click. The scriptures will come alive in a way that they hadn't before. The, the way you sing about me, it'll come alive in the way it didn't before. For us as a church, we exist as, at this church to glorify God, to spread the gospel, to serve the needs of the community. Every once in a while, those things are tested. Will we really do it? Are we really doing it for the right reasons? Are we really doing this for the Lord? We have to re-examine ourselves all the time. Because just like individuals have to have a heart and have motivations, a church has an ethos together that we have to test uh, have to have tested by the Lord every once in a while to make sure that we're doing the right things for the right reasons. Because if we don't, we won't see God when we come here to worship, and we certainly won't be able to present him to people who come here to see him. Right? All right. So next time that you're in that situation and, and it's like, am I going to keep doing this or not? Please do. The promise is on the other side, you'll see Jesus. Okay? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you and we thank you for passing all the tests. We thank you for um, having a pure heart, a heart of completely devoted obedience to your Father. And you saw him all the time. And Lord, help us to see you. Help us to, have our, to pass the test of, of motivation, of what our motivations are. Help us to sift out the contaminants. Help us, Lord, to serve you and serve you for the right reasons because we want to see you and we rest on the promise that we will see you if we do things the right way for the right reason. Help us to always know what the right reason is and what the right way is. We love you. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.